for November 21st, 2001. It's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 177. Batman, Arkham Chamber of Commerce. Welcome to the Overthinking and Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From the left coast of America, I am your host, Matthew Rather, here to overthink all manner of popular culture, including the movie that none of us saw this weekend, uh, Twilight Part 4A, Breaking Bad. Where OMG it- Edward. <laughs> G O G Edward, where uh, where uh, yeah, vampire starts dealing meth. Um, it's a story about a desperate family of addicts and the risks they'll go to to dra- drag people in and entangle them in their sordid uh, sordid crimes. To get the uh, yeah, absolutely to get the um, uh, that that red drug that they need so much. Uh, <laughs> although gr- I'd say groundbreaking in its depiction of an ig- luxuriantly mustachioed vampire, not, not a thing you see a lot. It's true. Uh, vampire. I mean, vampires tend to be clean shaven. I, I suppose. Yeah. I'm, I'm search. I'm racking my brains. Uh, oh, Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman in Bram Stoker. Yes. Oh, yes. He, was his, he was in his young form. He had that full on mustache goatee. Like he was seriously her suit. <laughs> he was his suit. He was that. He was that manly. Uh, uh, yeah, so we'll sort of- we'll we'll get to Twilight Breaking Breaking Bad later. But um, the uh, in the meantime, uh, question for the panel this week: uh, What what species of undead or supernatural creature do you think uh, would make the the best spouse? And you can you know whether you become one or not. As Bella becomes a vampire in the end. Spoiler alert. Um, whether you become one or not, uh, what, who would you like to be married to? Who would be a good um, good person to marry? Uh, marry? Pete Fenzel is not with us uh, today. Pete Fenzel uh, celebrated uh, – no, he celebrated uh, very hard. He overthought very loudly all weekend, and uh, his, uh, his voice is shot, so we are Fenzel-less. Um, it takes five overthinking it podcasters to make up for one Fenzel, though. So, Pete, get well soon. Uh, you, you, your your dulcet tones will be serenading us uh, very, very soon. First in the alphabet is Mark Lee. When is the last time this has happened? I know, right? This is uh, OMG. <laughs> uh, team Lee, not Team Fenzel. Okay, so uh, my uh, pick for a supernatural spouse is going to be the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. Because not only is he you yes. know, of, a, of a you know supernatural creature, he's also from another dimension, and perhaps most importantly, um, you know what I look for in a spouse is someone who can help provide for the family. And what better way to provide for the family than with sweet, delicious marshmallow food for sustenance? Huh. Mm. So you, you you would marry this this uh, this thing and then slowly devour it over the course of your union. Is what you're well, saying. really slowly devour. Okay, all right. Yeah, I so, mean, it's so like plenty like, of despair. Like is it that what like marriage is supposed to be? As as my wife does not listen to this podcast, yes, yes, that's exactly what it is. No. Uh, excellent, yeah. Mark Lee. Next in the alphabet, he is frying bacon. In Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, he uh, he is a member of the Bacon of the Month Club, and I think we will hear the bacon frying in the background. It is Mr. Joshua McNeil. Sizzle. 
The second he comes so, uh, off mute, you can hear the bacon frying. Yes. No, enjoy. enjoy. I hope our entire uh, audience gets very, very hungry for salted and smoked meats right now. I want to thank <laughs> Mr. Rather and Mr. Belinky for this birthday present of the Bacon of the Month Club. Um, supernatural spouse. I'm going to go with the Sirens. Oh, uh, reaching the, way back, oh, reaching yeah. way back into yeah, the grab those, bag. Those who, uh, those who would lure sailors to their deaths with their, their amazingly beautiful voices. I figure, like, you know, you get to listen to them sing, which is really nice. Uh, they're certainly doing their part to, like, you know, put food on the table by killing other sailors and allowing you to, like, steal from their ships. <laughs> um, and they've got good-looking sisters you can introduce to your friends. <laughs> wait, wait, but... Are all of them your spouse, though? And you're, so you're also willing to, like, pimp them out? No, no. Spouse? Clearly, I'm going with, like, Margaret the Siren. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, <laughs> you're just using her to get to Charybdis, right? <laughs> with her giant toothed maw. <laughs> uh, excellent. John Parrish next in the alphabet. What up, what up, what up? All right, so I'm, I'm going to make the logical choice and go for the supernatural spouse who I think would be the best provider, clearly a genie, because, you know, genies have limitless resources at their disposal. They're contractually, I think almost metaphysically obligated to obey your commands, and, yeah, they, they occupy very little space when you don't want to hang out with them. So they're just, they're just great to have around the house. There is, so there ideal is, spouse. There is, there is, there's one problem. So you you more want a genie as a pet than a spouse. Well, no, that, that's that's how spouses work, right? I mean, they're they're essentially pets, right? Like married people on the podcast. Back me up. Am I, am I correct in this? Uh, None uh, of us are married. On, oh, no, uh, yeah, no, second, second. Yeah, wait, wait. Uh, I will say that like one of the two spouses in in my relationship is sort of like a pet, um, in that I'm constantly leaving my hair around places and. <laughs> <laughs> and my, my wife probably spends more time thinking about whether or not I've used the restroom in a given day than any adult woman really should. But yeah. I only see one uh, problem with, with your uh, scenario there. It's just that with a genie, you got to rub them the right way. Well, yeah, that's, that's you know, sort of a uh, wah, wah. that's sort of a give and take. You know, you gotta be you gotta be physical, and in return, you get you get a a, a provider, a breadwinner, a, a moneymaker for the household. That's how relationships work, rather. I guess, yeah, right, yeah, absolutely. That's every time I every time I've been on a date and paid for dinner, I, I tested that theory and found that it is not <laughs> true. <laughs> it is not true, my friend. Uh, I know. I know. We kid. We just. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it really it's remarkable to me to think that some of our listeners uh believe there to be a strong male bias in our podcast <laughs> yeah i don't i don't where's know where, that coming from oh female podcaster could you could you back us up oh oh wait oh, oh. that's that's tokenism guys that's more offensive that's more offensive than the sausage fest <laughs> really <laughs> Really? Is it, is it possible to be more offensive than this? Is it? I don't know. That's maybe, my cue. Maybe Dave Schechner can answer that question. <laughs> what it is? Uh, 
uh, I was going to say something really offensive, but I don't want those chili peppers. So what it is, gentlemen, <laughs> fine esteemed colleagues in this palaver of overthinkers. Uh, yeah, okay, so I'm going to say, uh, first of all, I, you know, I married a, a, a Turkish woman, so I feel as though I've, I've sort of already answered this question. Um, like, that she is supernatural and or a pop culture? <laughs> I'd say she's certainly preternatural. Um, yeah, she's constantly spinning, always wearing a fez and invading Austria. Um, no, okay, so I would say uh, what you want in a spouse, as uh, John and sort of said, you want like a provider, you want someone who's going to be able to secure, uh, you know, a nice living space, uh, and someone who's clearly like worldly and well-traveled. And so I'm going to have to um, take a, a card from my good colleagues over in the Emerald Isles and say that I would marry a leprechaun. Uh, they've got, you know, the pot of gold. They're clearly, like, saving for a rainy day, after which there'll be a rainbow. And so you can clearly find, like, where home is if you're so staggeringly drunk that you can't remember, um, like, where to tell the cab driver to go. And uh, leprechauns, you know, they know a lot about the world, right? I mean, they've been uh, both in their native Ireland and they've been in the hood. They've been to space, <laughs> you know, Um as the film literature clearly uh, enumerates. So, yeah. No, I, I think it's the and clear choice. And they their magic in every box of Lucky oh. Charms. And every box of Lucky Charms. Yeah, we can... <laughs> like, the number of, like, hard-compressed marshmallows. There we go. I get, I get the best benefits of Mark's choice in the form of, like, compressed cardboard-esque marshmallows every morning. Plus the solid <laughs> investment of gold, which I hear <laughs> is just going up, up, up. There's gold in them there hills. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Uh, and you get a whole pot of it. All right, me, I'm last, Matthew Rather, with a W. Uh, my choice for supernatural being is Mila Jovovich, his character in The Fifth Element. Uh, <laughs> Lilu, the supreme being who is genetically engineered to save the planet and, uh, and get it on with Bruce Willis in a uh, body reconstruction unit at the end of the movie while the president of the galaxy looks in uh, from outside. So she's, uh, you know, she does incredible kung fu. She um, can get onto a, uh, she can get onto a spaceship while even without any ID. And she uh, saves the universe at the end through the power of luck. What more can you want? And she has magic levitating clothing. Oh, right. Yes, I remember that scene. <laughs> no, the, the, the weird orange jumpsuit of the oh, future. Yeah. yeah, weird. I was going to say, she, she's got like the, the suspenders to nowhere. Yeah, in the... Right? Uh, like the, the, sort of like the, ver- the vertical strippy thing that's not really... Yeah, anyway. <laughs> and Dave's not, just named my new band. Suspenders really, to nowhere. It's not really holding anything up. <laughs> it's, like, it's like the greatest alternative polka band ever. Well, let's um, we'll get to uh, uh, Twilight of the Gods a little later, uh, Gotur Damarung uh, a little later. But I um, I saw J. Edgar this weekend, and McNeil has been playing uh, has been playing. What have you been playing, <laughs> McNeil? Arkham City. Uh, he's been not playing my heart. About is what it. he's been doing. Sorry, <laughs> the, he's been playing the bacon game well, in not, which everyone. See, I, like we established last week that I'm no good at this video game, that this video game malarkey, and uh, uh, you know, thank you, listeners, who gave me suggestions for what video game to buy. I'm looking now for a, a copy of Mario Kart 64 and a console to play it in. How very 2005 of you. Well, that's, yeah. that's what they uh, that's what they said. Oft imitated, never never duplicated. 
Yeah, maybe we'll get a little bit of GoldenEye in afterwards. Yeah, all right. <laughs> uh, Josh, uh, anything strike you about Arkham City? I mean, we did a whole video games podcast last time about uh, Modern Warfare and Skyrim, but uh, what you thinking? Thinking mostly, I'm thinking about how delicious this bacon is. <laughs> mm. Damn bastard! Mm. Don't podcast with mm. your mouth full. It's very rude. Everyone knows that. So Arkham City is about Batman. No, um. <laughs> Arkham City is really, it, it's, uh, I, I'm not that far into it, because um, sadly I have to do things like work, but the, um, it's, it's a really just sort of uh, staggeringly big, complex um, thing, and, and the tone of it is really, it, it's sort of like right between the, the original Tim Burton Batman and the Christopher Nolan Batman, so it's like... It just it, it, he's tough and and hardcore with just like this this like dusting of camp that really to me is is about as good as that anybody's ever done the tone in film or or in the books or or anything. It's really just like this is this kind of feels like what a Batman story should be, and then you get to press buttons and punch people in the face. So in other words, it's the Batman the animated series Batman. Huh. It's it's. That's probably as close as it gets, yeah. Maybe a little darker than that. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, what, one being a kid's cartoon, but, you know, the, the video game. Now, I only played Arkham Asylum, and Arkham Asylum remains one of my one of my all-time favorites. I, I mean, uh, other reviewers said this, and, and I said it too when I lent it out to, to friends uh, who borrowed it. Like, it's the closest experience I've ever had, including watching any movies, to simulating what Batman should be like. Like, you know, just in terms of fighting or investigating crimes or taking down bosses or stuff like that. It's it's a it's an immense there's immense verisimilitude in the billionaire crime fighter with a suit of high tech body armor and, and gadgets. Immense realism there. So how does Arkham City compare to Arkham Asylum? I'd say that the tonally and sort of um, play-wise, very similarly, it, it's just as good in, in all the things you liked about um, Arkham Asylum, except that it really is this whole city, um, and you get to you're you're you know not creeping around one rooftop, you're sort of uh, you know swinging from rooftop to rooftop, and it just it just it's like exactly what you always sort of imagined being Batman to be when you were eight and asking people for candy. Um, <laughs> that's really like it's just it's a, it's a tremendous amount of fun. And um, God, I, I wish you were only talking about Halloween when you said that. Well, yeah. if, if only. <laughs> so how open-ended is this game? I've heard uh, it being compared to Grand Theft Auto and at least its scale. But is it to the I, point where you could, like, you know, just you know, swing from rooftop to rooftop and just drive the Batmobile around all day and the game would just sort of let you do that? I haven't gotten to the Batmobile yet, so thanks for spoiling that. But no, um, I don't know. I have no idea if the Batmobile is in it. I assume it is. Um, I probably should be. Um it's pretty open-ended. I mean, the missions, it's, the missions are actually pretty linear. Um, and I don't think there's a tremendous amount of, like, there are a bunch of side quests, but if you just sort of, like, I think I've played this a grand total of maybe five hours, and I'm about halfway through the main plot. Mm-hmm. So it moves pretty quickly. Um, but there are, like, just, you know, there's sort of, you're walking, or, or rather, you know, swinging down the street, and you hear a phone ring, and then that opens up a whole new thing. Or you hear somebody sort of, like, pleading for help, and there's a whole thing. Um, 
so there's a lot of extra stuff to do. There's also the like the the Riddler challenges, which is I think I saw somewhere there are 400 things you're supposed to go find, and wow. I have absolutely no patience wow. for that at all. So I will not be one of the people collecting all the Riddler trophies. But um, it's but, uh, but what if it unlocks achievements, Josh? What then? I don't, so, I'm sorry, guys. I haven't <laughs> had the chance to listen to the podcast, but did you get into the ridiculousness of the whole achievement idea I, I mean, uh, when you were talking about video games? It wasn't exactly analyzed as being ridiculous so much as it was analyzed as being totally awesome. Yeah, the, the only way you can judge your self-worth, yeah. Oh, Okay. So here's the other part of my question about asking about the open-endedness of Arkham Asylum is uh, related to the fact that all the screenshots that I've seen of this game um, show Arkham City or I guess Gotham at night. And I'm wondering, does the game ever take place during the day? And if so, do you get to play as, you know, the life of Bruce Wayne? Like, how complete of a Batman, being Batman experience is this? Do you, like, you know, you you, you go out and fight crime during the night and you, you wake up uh, or, or like you come slump back in your bed and you sleep through the entire day and you miss a board meeting that sort of thing. There are no board meetings in Batman Arkham Asylum. I'm not playing no. this game. No, we'd actually discussed it how like they should basically take this game and marry it to like I don't know Sim City or some of like some empire building game where you know half the game is spent building Wayne Corp. Um, <laughs> which well, I, I think would, would be a really interesting idea that no one would enjoy at all. But well, uh, no, I could, there could be part of that. I mean, you know, some of the game is spent building up Wayne Corp assets, and then some of it is spent defending those same assets from the super criminals who want to rob them and use them to build, you know, freeze lasers and laughing gas bombs, which would be a sort of interesting meta commentary on. You know, Bruce Wayne as defender or Bruce Wayne slash Batman as defender of the privileged. But, you know, neither here nor there. <laughs> so this reminds me of um, a game in which uh, the sort of the, the business building part of it is very much integral to the, you know, fighting evil action part of it. And that is I think we talked about this and overthink before is the old school Ghostbusters video game. Oh, from back in the God. day, in which yeah. like, you have to like manage your budget and buy, you know, constantly buy upgrades. And it's just, I mean, this is <laughs> yeah. obvious, but we should we should point it out that you know, integral to the story of Ghostbusters is this very you know scrappy, pull up by the bootstrap small business story. Whereas Batman is never a story about uh, you know uh, not having resources and then gaining them. You know, Bruce Wayne was born into wealth, right? He always had it. It was not a question of getting the um, getting the power, getting the resources, is what he was going to do with it. I would now desperately love to see Batman, small businessman, the comic or the movie or something small, like small that. Small business like, Batman, as it were. Yes. Bat- yes. Batman, Batman, Arkham Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, the one thing about this game that, that really is very terrible, um, and, but fortunately you're able to forget it, is the basic premise. And the, the premise of this game is that they have taken, like, a basically downtown Gotham City and just walled it off and then let all the criminals loose in it. Oh, it's like uh, Escape from New York. Um, or Detroit. But... <laughs> what, Not Escape uh, from Detroit. You mean just like the city of Detroit yeah, is. Uh, I, have, I have a couple of Michigan friends who I know listen to this, and we'll, now I will have an excuse to talk to them. Um, no, it's a... Uh, it's a really just truly really, – it makes no sense at all. 
they like take a supervillain and put the supervillain in charge of most of downtown. And then they're just like, criminals can hang out there. And they're like walking around the city in often like the orange jumpsuits. I mean, it would be like it would be like walling off, you know, 50 square blocks of Manhattan and then just being like, all right, no more prisons. You guys can have this part of town. Yeah, so it's hard so it's to like, imagine the political like, circumstances in which that was like passed by city council. It's like the Wall Street area, then. Zing, <laughs> ah. zing. So what I, so I want to know is why why go with this premise and why not just say, hey, you know, Gotham City is rife with crime, or there was like a prison breakout and there's criminals everywhere, and Batman, you need to help, and then just play the game exactly as is, where you know Batman's swinging from rooftop to rooftop. Occasionally, there's a mugging he has to stop, but and but he's following this overarching meta plot why go with this i don't know let dr hugo strange take over half the city and conduct some weird penological experiment yeah. it is entirely unclear to me why they made that choice. <laughs> like that first game would have been awesome this game awesome but every once in a while you go wait what which is not i think the tone they wanted but <laughs> still very much fun and like one of the more satisfying punch people in the face games I've ever played. Nice. But to be clear, punch people in the face video games that you've played. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like the, the real. <laughs> yeah, being, Sorry, in, that, the, the, being the, in that fight club in college, that was more satisfying. Yeah. We put the meat in meat space game. Yeah. yeah. It was the reason we kept our nails trimmed and our hair cut short. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, some of us just said hygiene. I mean, I don't know. I don't, Josh, have you ever played Kung Fu on the Nintendo Entertainment System? Uh, I have. I have. That but the, the pretty... fun part there was the fun part there was this the kick where you were essentially just kicking them in the toes multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. Was that the was the foot, cool. The foot was sliding across the floor, right? Uh, yeah. My special move. <laughs> by special, I mean only. <laughs> Ow, Dave, my toes. Oh, why did you do that? Why did you kick me in the toe? <laughs> and people, that's what our fight club sounded like. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I saw Jay Edgar uh, over the weekend, uh, and I, um, I was speaking of people who fight crime. Wear <laughs> 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 long flowing garments, Jay Edgar Hoover. I dropped the ball on that. Potato, potato. Speaking, speaking of weird, paranoid loners who live in dark offices and have twisted secrets. And <laughs> like to dress up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I saw Jay Edgar with, with Leonardo DiCaprio and with, with Army Hammer of, you know, um, <laughs> social network fame. of social network fame as uh, Clyde Tolson, who was the, uh, you know, who was Hoover's kind of. Well, it sort of suggests sort of longtime companion. Um, the movie doesn't make the case that that J. Edgar Hoover was gay so much as that he, that J. Edgar Hoover was like very effed up sexually, uh, largely by his his mother, um, who who is played by the inimitable Judy Dench of the Chronicle of uh, Pitch Black fame or the Chronicles of Riddick fame. <laughs> uh, that, that's that's Dame Judy Dench. Of <laughs> Excuse Chronicles me, of Riddick fame. Yeah, that's, right. um, James, that's her full title. As ordained by the uh, by the Queen of England, you know the Order of the uh, of Chronicles of Riddick. Because of your <laughs> stirring performance in Chronicles of Riddick, 
<laughs> I... Meanwhile, meanwhile, Vin Diesel can't get knighted for Chronicles of Riddick because you know politics. <laughs> yeah, that's some bull s. Um, and you know, Dame Judy gives a great performance. Army Hammer gives a great performance. Leonardo DiCaprio does, and Naomi Watts, who plays uh, uh, Hoover's secretary from his early days in the Department of Justice uh, through his death, and who like is you know destroying his secret files in one of the last shots of the movie, like shredding all the uh, all the secrets that he had on Washington power brokers and American power brokers uh, before. Nixon could get to them. Um, they're all good, but everyone else in this movie is terrible. Not because they're bad actors, uh, but because the script is so so concerned with this sort of forced march through the events of history, and it's told in this kind of parallel time frames with you know Hoover dictating his memoirs late in his life, and then also his accomplishments you know throughout his life as a young man and the, the young lawyer, I guess, in the Department of Justice, um, you know, working his way through the uh, you know through the ranks and becoming head of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Um, it's this it's this forced march, and the dialogue is so um, is so stilted, right? That it never the movie kind of never slows down to kind of I don't know take its time and let the let some of the the supporting people be actual people as opposed to be kind of like you know plot. Um, uh, plot conveniences. It is so, yeah. when you when you say it's a forced march through history. Do they like go out of their way to, you know, sort of show the events that we actually remember from high school and show how Hoover interacted with them? Yeah, uh, I mean, actually, there, there was one. I was talking with Fiona, my girlfriend, about this after we saw the movie together. Um, I, I'm not huge. I, I don't really know a lot about the period, like. Be- Right after World War One and before the Roaring Twenties, you know what I mean, with like labor strife and you know this kind of Red Scare. Uh, this, I mean, not the McCarthy Red Scare, but the this sort of you know there are communists in America and um, and this, the American response to like the initial response to the Bolsheviks, right? Yeah, well, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah there, there are Bolshevik communists in America, and they're they're like coming to uh, to destroy to destroy our way of life. Like, you know, it's funny, this movie's answer for everything is, is, well, he was gay or he was a, he would have been gay had he not been so relentlessly effed up by his mother. Right. Like, you know, why is, you know, why, why was he so authoritarian? Well, Hoover was gay. You know, why, why did he have such a fashion sense? Hoover was gay. Why did he insist on warrantless wiretaps? Well, he was gay. Naturally, you know, that's what they do. And it's, you know, this is kind of like, this <laughs> <laughs> insist on warrantless wiretaps. And this is the kind of catch all answer, you know. Dan Savage is going to have to re- redefine wireless uh, or, or warrantless wiretaps, I think, before we well, make I mean, that you, well, you know how much, you know, you know how much those, those gossipy gay guy like to dish. Like, oh my God, did you hear what happened over this unsanctioned wiretap we had on those communist sympathizers? <laughs> well, actually, oh, actually, the one, the one that the movie, and, and this, is, this is, I think, fictional, but, but we know that he did uh, bug Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, oh, yeah. the, the, um, the, the film imagines that he had a tape of Martin Luther King Jr. having an affair uh, with a woman, and it's a very interesting scene where he sort of plays this reel-to-reel tape, and you know, push in on Leonardo DiCaprio in old age makeup, you know, all jowly and craggy, 
you know, just sort of staring blankly off into space while uh, while Dr. King gets it on with a woman, right? Like, th- this is... This is sort of interesting. This is one of the, the moments where there's, there's some kind of humanity uh, in this character and some kind of, I don't know, some kind of sense of human experience in all its sort of huge contradictory glory. Um, the, the, the rest of it is, is a little more plot I don't know, is a, is a little more obsessed with the plot. But yes, absolutely. Okay, so the, the Bolsheviks, um, Hoover's response to the kind of the rise of the gangster and the, you know, Bonnie and Clyde style bank robbers uh, and the rise of the Tommy gun, how he got, um, how, how he sort of leveraged uh, uh, public opinion following terrible disasters like the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby to uh, centralize power in the FBI and to sort of get... Uh, ever increasing power for you know like the the power to carry weapons and make arrests which the bureau didn't initially have um, the power to uh, you know do wiretaps um, and you know and how this kind of got him into trouble sometimes with Nixon he talks about uh, there's there's a scene that that recurs several times in the in the film of him meeting the new president and the new president wants him to resign but he's already got a file on the you know on the president and he just kind of hints a little bit at the contents of the file and then you know he he is allowed to stay for as long as he wants uh which he did until you know the day the day he died um Right, and like, you know, files on Eleanor Roosevelt allegedly being a lesbian or, you know, uh, Martin Luther King, who, you know, who he was convinced, um, he was convinced was a, or at, at least the movie, at least publicly, he was, he was convinced that he was a, um, uh, you know, a communist or, you know, associated with radicals. Like radicals. It, it, the, in his mind, the movie suggests there was this class of radicals that was sort of everyone slightly outside the normal mainstream of America. And that, you know, that is the, the interesting, um, you know, uh, the interesting parallel with m- maybe being gay and kind of jammed forcefully into the closet uh, by your mother. There's a there's a, um, a really chilling scene with Judy Dench where she says, you know, I'd rather my son be dead than gay. Uh, in she says in a slightly different way, but I'd rather have a dead son than a gay one. And it's the whole theater kind of bristled at that because it was so uh, so horrifying. Um, that and and the kind of the obsession with with secrecy, you know, with secret files, with you know who knows what, who gets to know what, who gets to say what, uh, who can claim to sort of take take credit for things, and like a very rigid kind of anal retentive control of information that may have something to do with you know keeping a big personal secret like being gay. Um, but other than that, I, I was never bored during the, you know, two hours and 20 minutes that this movie played, but I was also never, never really moved by it. And I, I think that I didn't get, um, I don't know, any insight into history or any insight into, into human nature other than the, well, you know, gay equals warrantless wiretaps. The screenwriter is Dustin Lance Black, who wrote, <laughs> who wrote Milk. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to say... Um, acts to grind. So I, I won't say that that Dustin Lance, Lance Black has an axe to grind in this movie, but I think that I don't know, I think that it privileges a certain kind of psychologizing at the expense of what is, uh, what is really interesting in the history that this movie covers. I, it's, it's sort of peculiar to think that, um, that the same author would, would have scripted both of those scripts, right? Where 
you know, one, largely about uh, this pivotal moment in the course of, of America's relationship with its homosexual populace. Um, and, and the other, which I'm from the sound of it, takes a very sort of one-sided view of what it likes to, you know, what it means to be gay. Um, whereas, like, on the one hand, it, you know, it's sort of, it, it's a defining characteristic of a person in that it's very central to who they are. It's, it's, uh, it shapes their worldview in, in a very fundamental way. But on the other hand would be, you know, a uh, uh, ridiculously, uh, 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 reductionist to sort of say that it is so fundamental that it, it, it completely uh, sculpts a person's reactions and motivations for every event that happens in his or her life. Right? I mean, I mean these, things, these things are they, sort of complex and, and, and multi-determined, and the best... I, I hate to sound so, like, airy-fairy as I sound sometimes, but, like, the best films kind of... The best bio biography films, biopics, or I hear people say biopics sometimes. The best biopics... I say, um, I say biopics. <laughs> people think I'm European for just that one word. <laughs> the best biopics. I love a good biopic. Biopic. Right. We, we go to biopic, and we... Biopic. You'll... you'll... We you like, you like. We catch movie, yeah. Um, <laughs> In Soviet Russia, biopic is about you. KGB <laughs> <laughs> makes biopic about every citizen. Oh. Yeah. Um, Most have same ending. The best, uh, you know, the best ones kind of gesture at the mystery. You know what I mean? The kind of great mystery of why the hell anybody does uh, yeah. does anything. Which, in a sense, is is just sort of acknowledging, you know, the real truth of the situation, which is that, you know, if there's um, if there's a fundamental meaning to life, if there's a true motivation that drives a person to live his or her life, it's far too subtle or opaque to most of us to see, right? <laughs> you know, a person isn't motivated in the way a character is motivated in a film. Well, uh, right, absolutely. I mean, when I was young, I saw my parents gunned down by uh, vigilantes, and it it made me want yeah. to dress up like a bat and fight crime. Yeah, yeah, but you were very poor. Start a small business. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, I'm going to say, like, cookie, cookie case, not the best way to fight crime, Matt. Like, I think a different small business might have been might have been the way to go. So, Matt, a couple of questions. For, well, first, um, the whole the the idea of this sort of radical class was actually very prominent at that point in time so it sounds like they got that right um and i don't know if it was coincidental or not but uh, i'd recommend um uh, was it dan carlin's hardcore history podcast just did a fantastic um sort of look at american radicalism and the history of it and sort of the relationship of the state to these sort of um these folks who were considered traitors whether or not they really were um, it's, it's two and a half hours long, but, but Carlin's a really fantastic podcaster. So, uh, I would recommend that to, to you guys and to the audience. Um, question about the, the FBI though. I, I feel like the, the CIA has abandoned any attempt to seem like a positive influence in the world, um, in film at least like, it, you know, they're almost invariably the villains now, but I'm wondering sort of how the FBI comes across in this movie. Like, are they happy about it over there? Uh, over in in the actual halls of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Yeah, I well, I, you know, I don't know. I actually haven't stopped by my local FBI branch office since seeing the movie, so I didn't get a chance to. Uh, At least not while conscious. I didn't yeah. get a chance. I didn't get a chance to ask them. The you know the only like. It's funny, the only reference to, like, federal police work is, um, uh, you know, J. Edgar trying to, 
to centralize power and not really being a tough guy, uh, sort of lying in his memoirs about raids he conducted and people he arrested when, you know, largely he was sitting behind a desk. There's one sort of humiliating scene in a congressional hearing room where one congressman asks him, so how many men have you arrested personally? How many have you arrested? But the, um, the, the sort of, you know... who comes Wait. Up. So is is that actually is that a is that a real moment? Because the same thing appears in um, in Public Enemies, right? With- there, there's there's the there's the same moment, um, you know, sort of shot from from the opposite side, where where you know our antihero is uh, is Dillinger, uh, where there's sort of you know the very new bureau is being sort of brought into question in public. And that the wait, very same interchange happens. Wait, wait, hold on, hold on, Fechner. You actually sat through Public Enemies. I I was very drunk at the time. No, no, I did. I, I liked Public Enemies. Actually, I thought it was quite. Cool. I I wanted to like it because I really. I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to completely derail this from J. Edgar. Uh, I yeah. I really wanted to like Public Enemies because I like I love Michael Mann's stuff and I I love that era of of gangster mythos and I was on a plane flying over the Pacific so I really had nothing better to do than just watch whatever <laughs> movies were being streamed at me and yet I I just couldn't get compelled by it. I turned it off after huh. 30 minutes, and I almost never turn movies off. Was it a cut? Was, was it a, I, like an it, airplane cut version? No, it was It was the full-on, legit, whatever it was originally rated, R, I presume, or PG-13 or whatever. It was that, it was that same version. Huh. Did you think that there'd be an appearance by, like, Devious Terminator X and, uh, and Chuck D? I was hoping. I, yeah. was, I was hoping that... Uh, I was hoping that when they when they went off to rob their first bank, you know, Johnny Depp would would cock his Thompson sun machine gun and say, "Now it's time for Black Steel in the Hour of Chaos." Flavor Flav. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. sorry. Yes, back to back to J. Edgar vs. Public Enemies. But sorry. The, I mean, the, it, it, the part that does the part that does um, uh, come across in the movie is that the kind of technical. Uh, side of the the FBI and you know fingerprinting and forensics, modern forensics, and um, you know uh, that kind of stuff comes off very well. Uh, Was that a not the CSI watching public? Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> the uh, yeah the that sort of comes off very well, though it's um, it's the, you know these forensics are used to maybe the movie kind of questions the conviction of Hauptman as the kidnapper of the Lindbergh baby. And, um, so, I mean, kidnapper murderer, I guess. And the, uh, you know, so, so maybe the forensics don't come off, uh, totally, totally clear after all, but you know, I don't know what is he, he's a modernizer. He wants to make forensics a science. He wants to, I mean, not forensics, forensics is like speech and debate, right? He wants to make, crime scene analysis a science well, um, well, forensics forensics is also well, well forensic medicine isn't a science the way biology or chemistry are science forensic medicine is an application of science in order to like forensic debate to yeah. get at a goal to advance a to advance a case it's there more technology than, than science right um, he, he wants to kind of bring it out of the dark ages. He, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio, like it's very exercised when people contaminate the crime scene, but, you know, and it's hard to imagine a time when that wasn't a thing where you just like, you pick up all the evidence and put it in a bucket without really documenting it or, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm, just, I'm just picturing like like an old timey like wine barrel that's just like labeled evident. Like one of the E's is backwards. Evidence. <laughs> evidence. It's misspelled. Yeah, it's swinging. <laughs> but uh, it was apparently evidence. done with the cooperation of the uh, of the FBI. Um. What really? So that so Clint Eastwood went to them and's like, "All right, listen. Actually, sorry. So Clint Eastwood went to them and said." All right, listen. Oh, we should I'm have gonna... kept Fenzel on so that he could do the. I know. <laughs> Can we call him? No, I'm kidding. Let's not call him. He needs his rest. But so Clint Eastwood goes to the FBI and says, "All right, listen. I'm doing this. I'm doing this movie about J. Edgar Hoover. It portrays him as like this really secretive, cross-dressing, like sheltered, closeted gay guy who hated everyone around him." And they're like, "Oh yeah, sure. Come on in. Here's our here's our documentation." Like the, the, that, the that, beauty that, of that is that Clint Eastwood walks into the J. Edgar Hoover Federal Building in Washington D.C. and says, <laughs> I, "I know a joke that starts off that way." No, I don't. Um, lies, Dave. Yeah. I, <laughs> so I saw that movie. <laughs> Here's the thing: if, if it's the CIA, you know, Clint Eastwood would walk in and he'd be like, "So I'm doing," and and their response to everything he said would be like, "Yeah, we know, we know already. That's fine." Like if we didn't approve of it, you'd already be dead. <laughs> oh, yeah. So. Fistful of fingerprint cards. Um, yeah. Oh, and uh, one more thing about this movie: Clint Eastwood writes music. He's a you know he likes doing. Huh. Um, he likes doing doing that, and he's done it for a bunch of movies that he's been on. And it's um, in this one, it's okay. I mean, he uses a lot of sort of found music and some diegetic music. There's a lot of jazz going on in the background of the clubs where, you know, J. Edgar and Clyde Tolson go, uh, you know, being not gay together. And the um, and that's okay. But then there's this kind of weird synthesizer jazz. This weird like uh, Clint Eastwood composed synthesizer jazz at some like emotional uh very emotional moments in the film um it's like out of nowhere there's just like some weather report that that bubbles up there <laughs> yeah and you know when, when, you, when you started talking about this i was really just hoping and praying that all of clint eastwood's composed music would be just sort of solo whistling heavy <laughs> <laughs> like, like echo chamber steel guitar <laughs> No, he, he he shows up and he he plays this track for the for the other producers and they're like, Clint, that's the that's the Miami Vice theme. <laughs> Clint, it, it appears to be just you no, no, singing no, they don't, the they, Miami Vice. Theme. Yeah, they don't say that. They say Mr. Eastwood. It appears to be you singing the Miami Vice theme. <laughs> True. <laughs> 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 Um, Can that be the title of the podcast? <laughs> but Josh, how it's was, not clear. I, how okay, was the bacon? Ahead, it was the best bacon I've ever had. Can you describe it? Can you describe it for us? <laughs> it was. Um, it it had this sort of uh, like a. I mean, you could really just smell the wood smoke as it was frying. And then uh, throughout, there was just this sort of like fantastic sort of hickory flavor through it. Ah. It's very thick cut. So it was sort of, you know, it wasn't just crispy. It was like meaty inside. It was truly delicious. I cannot wait for the next month of bacon to appear. Well, Um, yeah, it'll take a... Did you fry the whole pound and eat it all tonight? 
just say yes, Scotch. Just say yes, you did. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to assume that you actually did, and you're just being modest. I did fry the whole pound, but I'm saving some of it to, to use in some Thanksgiving food. Yeah. Uh, some, some of that bacon's for eating, some of it's for wearing. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it chafes a bit, um, but it's it, it's very stylish. That that's the hickory smoke. <laughs> nice. Um, all right. Well, uh, pushing on, Josh, you saw uh, Hell on Wheels, didn't you? Can you tell us a little bit about it to go even farther back from the uh, from the era of you know Bolshevik revolutionaries and. Um, uh, what was her name? Emma Goldman getting uh, deported from the the United States. Let's go back to the era of robber barons and uh, you know laying track across the uh, across these great United States. How, how, to be clear, that... to be clear, to be clear, the one percent robber barons weren't the ones laying the track. It was the ninety nine percent of the Chinese laborers that were laying the track. All right, Occupy our <laughs> Sorry, go on. Well, so Hell on Wheels is, uh, you know, it's thick cut, so it's crispy on the outside and then meaty when you get into it. Oh, uh, uh, he's no, in a loop. He's looping. <laughs> <laughs> Someone reboot Josh. Um, I've only seen the first episode. I guess as of tonight, there are three out, so I'm looking forward to catching up to it. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's a Western, and it's sort of very much in the style of a Western, but throws in, um, you know, the sort of the politics behind it. Um Chief O'Brien from Deep Space Nine, it turns out, built the railroad, which makes perfect sense. Um, <laughs> he was able to just replicate large pieces of it at a time. Um, I'm sick and tired of this retconning of history. Gosh. <laughs> now, he's actually, he's fantastic in this as the sort of just completely unscrupulous robber baron. Um, the first scene he's in is him uh, bribing a senator who's on the transportation committee uh, and who will be funding this this whole biz- venture. You know, he's like giving him stock in the enterprise that the federal government's about to fund. It's really good. The main character, um, as of the first episode, is still a bit of a cipher uh he's 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 a little clint eastwoody and like he's strong and silent and you know you don't really know a whole lot about him other than he has a dark past um but i think it's got a lot of promise and to uh to my recollection it is thus for the or, or, or certainly currently the only television show about public transportation that i've seen um and uh you know it's <laughs> does it not <laughs> Now that now that taxi is off the air, yes. <laughs> I was gonna say like like the, the speed movies don't count for you. <laughs> you know when they make the live action speed TV show, which I'm certain was discussed <laughs> at one point, uh, I will watch that show. But no, it's it's sort of uh, you know I think the history is going to be really interesting, and they're going to tie it to some good uh, to good characters. Uh, Common is in it, and seems to I think the relationship between uh, Common and the main character is going to be really interesting. It starts off with this sort of very awkward racial um, sort of interplay, but sort of by the end of the first episode, you feel like they're going to be um, interesting allies. Um, it's AMC. The, the pilot is not great, um, but it being AMC, I'm sort of willing to give them the benefit of the doubt and watch a couple of more of them. Uh, so I would love for for you guys or for uh, you know for the audience to to watch a couple and let us know what they think because it's um, I've really missed westerns since Deadwood went off the air. Um, there's not been a good western TV show, and I'm, I'm you know hoping and praying that this is uh, as good as it could be. 
Lovely. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad common. I'm glad common is in something that's not Terminator Salvation. Thank, thank you, Common. Well, he is also, according to the billboard above the Philadelphia bus stop, um, in Happy Feet. Two. <laughs> okay. Uh, happier Feet. Uh, yeah. along, along with Pink, who is credited on this billboard as whatever Pink's real name is, parentheses, Pink. So Pink has decided to get out of being Pink at this point and has chosen the vehicle of Happy Feet 2 to expand beyond her onstage persona. So she's, so, in that weird, she's in that weird chrysalis stage halfway between you know, <laughs> pupa and butterfly. So we, we just have to watch her break out of her shell and shed the mucous membrane that binds her wings together. Well, I think at this point she's the egg that the mother penguin is like waddling down to the ocean on her feet. <laughs> <laughs> but did you guys see those copy of her uh, script, the scripted performance for the Grammys next year? I think that's what's going to happen. Uh, <laughs> her scripted <laughs> performance for the Grammys. <laughs> uh, Speaking of eggs. I, <laughs> go on I, I don't know i don't even i don't even really have a have a segue on that i mean we we mentioned we mentioned breaking dawn at the top of the podcast but i don't know that we have the time left to really give it the consideration that a movie which none of us saw deserves <laughs> we, usually, we usually spend a whole you, podcast on that i know right it's it's just not fair uh oh, oh i got it i got it speaking of eggs uh, the vampires are hatched like, like oh, speaking uh okay how's what? this speaking of eggs they go fantastic with this bacon with bacon yeah <laughs> they, they would god i love eggs, eggs. <laughs> i'd love eggs and bacon right now yes penguin eggs especially mm. oh, uh, so, speaking of eggs there there is a lot of weird pregnancy not not subtext but overt text in breaking dawn both the both the novel and the movie and I, my understanding is that the that the sex scene in which Bella gets impregnated by Edward is sort of done off camera and just alluded to with like wrecked furniture and feathers in the air from pillows being shredded, etc. But the the pregnancy itself is pretty gra- not graphically depicted, but we we go through a lot of the anguish and catharsis of the of the scene, is my understanding. If- does it get do you get uh does it end with the birth of her baby or does it end when she's knocked up? Oh, the movie ends well after the birth of the baby. Oh, really? So she's already spoiler alert, she's already a vampire by the end of the movie. Yes. Yes, she is. She is she's well into the the vampiric stage. I think the movie my understanding, spoiler, whatever. My understanding is this movie ends with a with a sort of ominous cliffhanger into the confrontation between the vampire, the Cullen family, and the the weird Italian branch of vampires. Yeah, which is led by which is led by Prime Minister Tony Blair. Yes, and which uh, which which makes the the latter third of the novel which is going to now be the latter half of this movie so i think it's going to be an edge of the seat thrill ride is is my take (laughs) um you know in the in the books all of which i confess that i have read the the sexing is is not 
really alluded to or anything except I'm, it seems to have th- this horror of sex. Sex is this this kind of uh, primal trauma which can't be depicted, but the the sort of after effects are depicted, and the after effects are like a lot of bruising and like y- you know that that Bella is pretty pretty messed up by her. So so you'd, you'd say it's a fairly accurate depiction of sex. <laughs> <laughs> you know the idea that's is not that... really that's not really an anti-sex message. It's an anti-necrophilia message. Right? Yeah, yeah, because yeah, the vampires are. So much stronger than than humans, and they just can't. Con- they're so emo; they just can't control their emotions. Um, <laughs> you know, oh, and so right, and so but 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 she wants to do it to make him happy. It's really like as far as it's retrograde, as far as the like the. Gender if she, if she makes him happy, it. doesn't he lose his soul again? <laughs> no, no, that would be a lot better writing, Josh. Oh, right. Substan- substantially better scripting. Well, to to so par- they- to partially defend Stephanie Meyer here, uh, the, it's not. I mean, while it might not be the most sophisticated or empowering view of sex as as far as feminist ideology is concerned, it's not a foreign view of sex. I mean, there there are a lot of. There are a lot of adolescents who who do view sex as this really terrifying ritual that has, you know, a great potential for, like, bruising and heartbreak and, oh, my God, it's yeah. built up so much I don't know what it's going to be like. I, I know I I know I have to do it, but I'm really scared of it. So yeah, and, and girls who would, who would see their male partners as being sort of feral and uncontrollable, especially in the throes of the event and, and yeah. wanting to sort of concede and do it just sort of to make them happy, if nothing else. Yeah, so that, that, yeah. that's an... That's an empathetic take, if not a, if not necessarily an empowering one. Sure, but this is not. I mean, this is not a depiction of sort of fumbling sex had by two adolescents, right? This is a this is a married couple. You know what I mean? One of whom is over a hundred years old, and the, you know that this is their. This is kind of their. This is what their married sex life. Uh, is like you know, I, I you sort of cross a threshold. I think when you get when you get married and 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 the depiction of sex, even even sort of first sex, right? Like if you're a virgin when you get married, is not necessarily like it's not necessarily about being you know being a young teenager and like I don't know, not really knowing what's going on, but trying to make it work somehow. You know what I mean? I guess. Uh, I mean, I can. I, I can still. <laughs> having having never been married, I can't tell you what sex is supposed to be like. You know, when when married, but I I, I, I still see some. I still see some sympathy for that that fear. I guess. Now, I, I imagine there could have been much better ways to depict it than the weird sort of creepy vampire immortal slash teenage girl relationship that Edward and Bella have, but. I, I get where they're coming from. You know what is I mean? What like, yeah, read a Judy Bloom book if you want to read about. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Are you, are, you, are you there, God? It's me, vampire. And I yeah. hate you forever. <laughs> um, yeah, right. In in the book, it's... it's uh, what he, he like i think the sentence is something along the lines of you know he took he took my hand and led me out into deeper water cuz they're on their like island honeymoon you know and they're they're like swimming at night um and you know i don't know decide to do it in the ocean or something like that he took my hand and led me out into deeper water uh that's the sex scene in the book oh he i loses get it. the virginity in the ocean i 
I'm, then it, I'm not sure if it loses count, it in right? the ocean or on the beach or, you know, if they just do. In bases. either case, these are suboptimal circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> if they if they do bases one through three in the ocean and then, you know, head back, uh, towel off, have a quick shower to to wash off the salt and, you know, continue the the you know, vaguely coercive S and M fest in, in the master bedroom. I don't know. I don't know, but, uh, you know, whatever it is, uh, uh, OMG Jacob. So dreamy. Yeah. I hear Jacob take his shirt off like really early in the movie, like 10 seconds into the movie. Well, that's good. I mean, because really that's what we've paid our money for. And uh, if he didn't take his shirt off, I don't, you know, I'd want my... Uh, I know. All right. Listener feedback. This is from Jason. Uh, I'd say where he's from, but he's driving across the country. So he's not... His uh, his location is under... Um, yeah. Uh, but we, we can we can quote his momentum with, with, with perfect accuracy. Though. <laughs> uh, you're overthinkers. Spe- speaking of people who are just married... Uh, and who may or may not be having sex in the ocean. No, Matt, that's terrible. Why do you say that about the listeners? <laughs> <laughs> this is what Jason I mean, that's technically true of everyone. <laughs> yeah, I suppose yeah, everyone uh, may be having sex in the ocean. I mean, this, unless someone is like... This podcast went super quantum all of a sudden. <laughs> At a certain temperature, we're all currently having sex in the ocean. <laughs> Dear overthinkers, my fiancé and I have been on a cross-country road trip for the last three months. That is a long cross-country road trip. I mean, where, where are you going Damn. that it takes three months to drive? They didn't say which country. My guess is Russia. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> One of those really long countries, like, like Micronesia. Oh, like Chile. No, it's America, as you will see, as you will see from what follows. He continues. Your podcast has been <laughs> our only alternative to country radio for our many long yes. drives around <laughs> this giant country. While country music holds a wealth of overthinking potential, there's only so much I can take. Your podcast has also been our only window into the world of pop culture lately. Three months of camping has made us very behind on our movies and TV. Representing all of pop culture may seem like a hard task, but I trust you to take on that responsibility. Thank you, Jason. Uh, doesn't give his latitude and launch to because he is driving across the country. That's why, Jason, yeah, that's Jason, why we talk about, uh, talk about Twilight Breaking Bad, a movie that none of us have ever seen. <laughs> Jason, if you're gonna if you're gonna camp for three months, man, pick a state capital and do some political good. <laughs> rather, <laughs> not, uh, rather, rather, nothing in that email you read in, suggests that it has to be the United States. I mean, that country music could be Russian country music. It's They're true. like, oh, if I have to hear Vladky Slotin one more time, I'm gonna slit oh my, my throat. Put in that podcast in Soviet yeah, right, Russia. Right. <laughs> Ride state uh, state official people's trasher save cowboy. <laughs> in Soviet in Soviet Russia, heart breaks you. <laughs> oh. it's, it's Soviet Russia. You leave wife. Yeah, in, so- in, Soviet, in Soviet Russia, you are only thing dog has left. <laughs> hey, you know, you know what happens if you play a country song backwards, right? It's still terrible. <laughs> uh, I, I thought you were going to say I thought you were going to say the the capitalist uh, season means of production. 
Workers of the world unite. You have I know nothing I... to lose but your chains. Nothing Mark, to... Mark, you have new homework assignment, which is to write the great communist country song. <laughs> on it. It's just called the Nationale. <laughs> Wait, isn't isn't like the entire isn't the entire Arlo Guthrie catalog the the communist country song like this land is your land? Eh, it's not really country. It's more of a folk. And frankly, oh. after thirty five minutes of Alice's Restaurant, who wants to define a genre for it? <laughs> <laughs> you just you just want to remember what it was like when you weren't living in it. I just I just wanted to know whether or not it was a good restaurant. After 35 minutes, there's still no recommendation one way or the other. Dude, you can get anything you want. Yeah, but it, you, it might not be good whatever you want. So so there there's a future. I know we did I know we've done pseudo Yelp posts in the past. Someone needs to do a Yelp review of Alice's restaurant, the, <laughs> the text of which is just the lyrics to Alice's restaurant. <laughs> and it's ultimately like a, a three star review that, that three people think is cool and no one thinks is useful. <laughs> All we know about this restaurant is they dump their garbage in their house for like months at a time. Okay. Yeah, in yeah, Soviet yeah. Russia, they dump you in garbage in your house. Uh, one last piece of <laughs> listener feedback. You, you, went, you went a little Carpathian in the end there, too. You grow on a mustache for that, man? Yeah, absolutely. I'm <laughs> extravagantly mustachioed. <laughs> um, uh, finally, one last piece. Ben writes in and says, Duncan Jones, the director of Moon and Source Code and the son of David Bowie, uh, asks on Twitter, are there a pair of films where you think maybe the movie would have been improved if the lead actors, uh, one lead actor from each film, not two leads in one movie, are there a pair of films where the lead actors from each movie could swap and it would, uh, it would improve the movie. Are there a pair of films where you think maybe the movie would have been improved if the lead actors had swapped roles? We'll leave that as a question for the listeners to answer wow. in the comments, and we will uh, we'll pitch in our own ideas in the comments on the show notes of this post. You can also email us, as these fine people, as Jason and Ben did, uh, at podcastoverthinkingit.com. You can call or text 203-285-6401, though honestly, I don't know why I say that anymore, because no one ever does it. And... Uh, you know, someone call Matt, please. Uh, and until next week, when a glorious revolution overthrows the editor of <laughs> me, <laughs> dude, Jagger's bugging you right now. Right, I, they, they don't need to bug me. For whatever reason, we record our subversive conversations every week and broadcast them for <laughs> the whole internet point. to hear. Uh, so until a glorious people's revolution next week, you can visit us on the internet at www.overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, it probably it doesn't deserve. In Soviet Russia, podcast doesn't deserve you. Batman, it's Commissioner Gordon. We've got a bunch of hippie protesters camped out in Gotham Park. We need you to disperse them. Uh, I'm doing this. I'll disperse them, but only because I'm gay.